want you to keep your Bibles open. I'm glad that you're joining us today on Good Friday, on, on a day where our sins have been forgiven, on the day where Christ hung on the tree for us and for our salvation. And during celebration times like this, we are quick to have a sense of celebratory atmosphere in a day of or in a time of the year where we get to call off work, we get to stay home, we get to focus on the cheery aspect of what happened at the cross. We are quick to forget that what was going on and what happened on Good Friday was not celebratory. It was the dawn of a dark and gloomy hour for all of us. For Jesus, as we read through the accounts of his last steps up until that cross, he was mocked, he was made fun of, he was rejected, he was placed in the center of other sinners, other men who deserved to hang, but not Jesus. It is a dark time, it is a gloomy time, it is a moment of anguish and sorrow and bitterness and pain and tears. They are moments and these, these moments in Good Friday are a time of sorrow and dark. This is what Jesus had to endure at his moment of his death. And we read through the last couple of verses in chapter 15 focusing on him leading to the cross. We want to concentrate on the last six verses between verses 33 and verse 39 of chapter 15, which recounts this dark and gloomy hour. So never forget, friends, that though we are here and though we are celebrating and though we are making a, a great moment of this occasion, it must be remembered that Christ died, that he hung on the cross, and that there was pain involved. Good Friday is good only because of the outcome. But there was nothing good about it on that day. The outcome, standing from a 2,000-year perspective at a bird's-eye view, is celebratory. But on that day, it was nothing but darkness. And so in verse 33, we get this Amazing opening to this description of the crucifixion. It says in verse 33 of chapter 15, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. My friends, this is what we want to focus on today. There was darkness. The day was dark as Jesus hung on the cross. Prior to that event, we have this wonderful depiction of his last week. Most of the synoptic gospels follow the same chronology. And we're going to follow the chronology of Mark here. Where we get to see several of the events leading up to Good Friday. On the Sunday before Good Friday, which is in Mark chapter 11. We see Jesus coming in in what is known as the triumphal entry. This Palm Sunday of, of Jesus coming in and being acknowledged 
as ruler and king. And he's riding on a donkey into the temple at Jerusalem. The center, the center for worship. And on the following day, Monday, Jesus has to cleanse the temple. We read that in Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. He cleanses the temple from false worship. Proving once again that people have turned to their own makings and to their own ideas and to their own religion for salvation. And prior to his death, one of his final acts was to point the people directly to proper worship. Point the attention of the people to God and how he deserves to be worshipped. On the Tuesday and Wednesday of the Passion Week, of the Holy Week, Tuesday and Wednesday, Christ does his prophetic office. He is preaching and teaching. I want you to get that right. Prior to his death on Friday, Christ, one of his final acts, not only does he cleanse the temple, but he also continues to function in his prophetic role to point the people to God. And to get their attention off their actions and off their sacrifices and point them directly towards God and how they shall be saved. In this prophetic ministry, he teaches and preaches and we get this wonderful teaching in Mark chapter 13 called the Olivet Discourse. And in this chapter 13, he warns the people of what's to come. If you look quickly at at Mark chapter 13... I just want to highlight a couple of features of his preaching just so you understand the magnitude and the weight of what is about to occur. In chapter 13, verse 6, he says, Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. He repeats the same theme in verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. He also warns the people in verse 9 of the same chapter, But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and king for my, for my sake to bear witness before them he's telling his disciples and the future disciples to be on guard in verse 23 he repeats the theme but be on guard i have told you all these things beforehand as a warning and in verse 33 he continues the theme be on guard keep awake for you do not know when the time will come and verse 35 he finalizes it by saying therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning about his return what Christ is preaching and what he is functioning in this prophetic world, what he is doing is that before his death, he warns of those false gods and false Christs and false messiahs that will come to divert the attention away from who he is, from what he came to do. And Christ lays this warning out prior to his death. Friends, there is only one way to salvation. Christ is, will fulfill his role in salvation on the Friday of the Passion Week. And he is clear about what will happen afterwards. 
Many will come in my name, he said. And so therefore, the call for the disciples and the call for the church prior to, to Friday of the Passion Week is be on guard and stay awake and be alert. For many will come in my name to guide and to misguide the church. This is what he is screaming. This is what he is preaching. This is the worry of our Christ prior to his death. The final wishes of what it means to be in Christ is to know who he really is. Because his death was going to be the stumbling block. As Paul says, the cross will be the stumbling block for many. On Wednesday, they also plot to kill Jesus. While he's preaching and while he's teaching, their others are plotting against him and how to take him and kill him. On Thursday, the day of the Passover, the, celebra- the celebration feast will happen and Jesus spends the night with his disciples and with the one who will ultimately betray him. He spends the night there and he institutes the Lord's Supper. And in this institution, it's this beautiful foreshadowing of what's to come. Though the pain and agony that he's going to suffer on the cross the very next day, he points to the disciples at that very moment and says, this blood, in verse 24, will be poured out for many. Mark chapter 14 is the institution of the supper between 17 and 26. And Christ clearly wants to identify a memorial, but he is clearly emphasizing the continuity of the effects of that Good Friday. What will happen on Good Friday will seal what is to happen within the church as far as communion goes. That's why, my friends, we can't take communion service lightly. This was done prior to his death on the cross as an institution to remember, but as an institution to keep God and Christ present daily in our lives. And so, around midnight on Good Friday, Jesus is out praying, and he is betrayed, and he is arrested. The story of that is in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Midnight, he's arrested, And around sunrise, he begins the trials. Our Lord and Savior was tried like a common criminal. Before the Jewish court, in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to chapter 15. And then he he is also tried before the Romans. In a Roman secular trial. Before 9 a.m. in the morning. He is betrayed. He is put in jail, and he is tried like a criminal all before breakfast. Roughly between the hours 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. on Friday, Good Friday, our Lord and Savior was crucified. He was murdered, and he was killed. And on the evening, or prior to the evening of Good Friday, between 12 and 3 p.m., Our Lord and Savior dies. 
In the evening, he is finally buried. And this all happens prior to his resurrection. We have to understand what is happening on Good Friday and feel the weight and the burden and the agony of what Christ had to do, not to cause us to have an emotional reaction to this. This isn't for us our emotion. This isn't to make us cry or make us have some feelings about what happened on Good Friday. It's to get us to realize what the center of our worship should be and what happens on a continual basis for the life of the Christian. That's why we see that in the, good, in the Lord's Supper on Thursday. So when we come to verse 33 of chapter 15 now, we come back to this moment of gloom. In verse 33 of chapter 15, we have this concept of darkness. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There's a moment of dark, dark, dark days. This happens at the cross, and it is a sign, my friends. See, this is why there isn't joy at this very occasion. Because it represents what the, what, what the prophets and what the Old Testament always pointed to. In the Old Testament, darkness was in the sense of, of lament and judgment of God. The prophets like Amos would say this is, that darkness is lament. In, in Amos chapter 8 verse 9, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Verse 10, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and, and the end of of it like a bitter day. It is a sign of lament. It is also a sign of judgment. Zephaniah would say in chapter 1 verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Micah chapter 3 verse 6 says, Therefore it, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. Joel repeats this in chapter 2 verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before nor will be again after them through the years of all the generations. What darkness represented here at the cross was not a darkness that coincided with a solar eclipse or just so happened. It is darkness because it represented God's judgment over a people. And most importantly, God's judgment over his son. Darkness also anticipated judgment upon Egypt and their kings and leaders. This isn't a good day. This isn't a glorious day. For us that stand 
2,000 years afterwards, it is magnificent. But on that day, it was dark and there was judgment. All the Pharisees and all the people that followed Jesus superficially were basing their faith and were basing what they, uh, everything that they felt about Jesus on what they saw, on what they experienced. And still, they did not believe him. And still, they were not there on the day of darkness. The Pharisees themselves, if we remember what we read in chapter, 50, in chapter 15 in Mark, what does verse 32 say? When we go back to verse 32, let the Christ, this is the Pharisees speaking, let the Christ, the King of Israel, mocking him, come down now from the cross that what? That we may believe the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day wanted him to come down from that cross so that they can see and believe. And now, on the day of judgment, on the day of darkness, they wanted to see. And though they saw him in person prior, now they can't see. Now they can't see the Son of God because there is judgment now. It's dark. There is darkness across the land. And what is most important here is to realize that God is the one that caused this darkness. In verse 34, this darkness takes deeper implications in the life of Christ. In verse 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross is alone. It's dark and lonely, and he suffers alone. In the midst of two other complete criminals, Christ is suffering, the righteous Christ, the sinless Christ, the perfect Son of God is suffering alone in dark. This theme of loneliness comes from what came in chapter 14 when he is betrayed. He was praying by himself alone. He was alone while he prayed and he was alone while he suffered. This Christ that's hanging on the cross at this moment is the suffering servant that Mark has been presenting all along. He is the suffering servant. He is the man that suffers before us. Who's carving the way before us but is in suffering. He has been rejected by Israel. He has been abandoned by his disciples. And up until this moment, he is feeling that he is being left by his father. He is exposed to the horrors of humanity's sin. So intense, he senses God's separation from him. This on the cross is a depiction of Christ, of the God-man, suffering. He expresses that in his cry. He expresses that in his voice. He expresses that in the sense of feeling this divine urge of sin upon him. 
And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? However, what he is doing on the cross is in no way teaching us that he did anticipate or that he did believe that his father was abandoning him. For what he was doing on the cross was fulfilling his divine mission. He didn't for one second believe that he was wasting his time. He didn't for one second regret what this led him to. For on that cross, in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said that he will be the ransom for many. He understood why he hung on that cross. And by identifying himself with the servant in Psalm chapter 22, we opened up our service today reading from this glorious psalm. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's identifying himself with the one who is suffering in Psalm chapter 22. He quotes the beginning lines of Psalm 22. And I want to go there with you so that you can see this and read this along with me. He quotes from the very beginning, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opening lines of Psalm 22 verse 1. And what is he doing here? He is bringing us to light. He is not zooming in on one verse and taking the rest of the chapter and forgetting about the rest of the chapter. What he is doing is he's recalling and putting our attention on what happens in Psalm 22. Though the, sol the psalmist cries out and feels this agony and feels this pain, what, what he is doing is going through the entire psalm, having the people remember what that psalm says. For instance, in chapter 22, verse 11, he, the, the psalmist says, Be not far from me. In verse 16, he recognizes, it says, For dogs have encompassed me. In verse 19, he says, But you, O Lord... Do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. In verses 21 through 31, we have this wonderful depiction of glorious salvation. So when Christ cries out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't, he doesn't say it in the understanding of God has left him never to come back again. He doesn't mean to say it in the way that he has felt complete abandoned by the Father. He says it because he knows what the Father is about to do. He cries out to God. If he would have felt abandoned by God, he would not have cried out to his God. But he cries out to him on the cross, knowing the victorious ending of the Psalter. 
from 21 and on, we see, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. Jesus was remembering the words of the psalmist. He heard the cries of his people. Jesus knew the outcome of this hour. Dark and gloomy as it may be, he knew God heard him. And Christ suffers on this cross. We feel that in his pain. That's why it's not a sin to suffer. That's why it's not a sin to be a Christian and feel pain. And, 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 or, or, or feel like we have to be exempt from all our pain around us. Christ himself suffers. You have to remember that on the, Christ, on the cross, our Christ, our perfect representation of humanity, himself suffered. And he was suffering in our place. Not for anything that he has done, but for us. This suffering on the cross was seen by the Jews that rejected him as a contradiction of terms. How can the Son of God suffer? To the Greeks and the Gentiles, this suffering God, this suffering king made no sense. And Paul later says in 1 Corinthians, this was foolishness to the Greeks and to the Gentiles, to the Romans. How can this commanding king hang between two criminals and suffer? It made no sense. But yet, on that cross, as he suffered... He was accomplishing the purpose he was sent to do. God's judgment fell on Jesus. His judgment was placed upon him once again, my friends, for us and for our salvation. But at that hour, it was the judgment of God placed upon the perfect son. And we have to understand that. We have to get that. Good Friday is good because of that. Not because God pleased, was pleased in destroying his son. But because the avenue, the, the way, the, the manner, the means of salvation could only be accomplished with a perfect sacrifice. And no other could have taken that place other than Christ. In Christ we have a substitutionary act. It is a substitute. It is a divine substitute on our behalf. And he bears God's wrath so that sinners can avoid eternal consequences. We are exempt as God's people from the eternal death caused by sin. All because one man hung on that cross and bore God's wrath. When we get to verses 35 to 36, we see this tension between people and suffering. A lot of people don't like to suffer. 
especially in those days. The people misunderstood. We read in verse 35, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Verse 36, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on, on a reed and gave it to him drinking, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They did not want to see him suffer. They thought he was calling Elijah back. And what do they do? To alleviate the suffering, they offer him cheap wine. This sour, the ESV translates it as a sour wine. The reality of it is it's a cheap wine. It is it is the type of wine that the poor and lower class people would enjoy because it was cheap as compared to what was in the palaces and what the Roman emperors would drink. This wine was the type of wine that the soldiers used to drink so that they could stay awake during battle. It was cheap. It was bitter. It was nasty. And so that will, that's what was given to Christ as he hung on the cross, crying out in agony and in pain and feeling and sensing a sense of separation from his father. And to alleviate that pain, they bring the sponge with cheap wine on a reed, on a branch. The same reed that we that we read about in Mark chapter 15, verse 19, that the soldiers used to whip him and beat him with. This same reed with this cheap wine was given to comfort a righteous man. They were confused. They thought he was calling Elijah. But Jesus was not calling for Elijah. Jesus called out. To God. No one else could have saved him. No one else could have taken that off. Only God. When we move on to verses 37 through 39, we see the lasting effects of that cross. We see not only at the cross, and not only do we see a resurrection on the following days, but at that night, at that moment, we see what the fulfillment of what Christ was supposed to do in paving a way for salvation. Read with me verse 37 through 39. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. You see at the death, it's at the forefront of this last part in, the, in, in this chapter. Finalizing the story of his crucifixion, the first thing that is mentioned is that he breathes his last breath in verse 37. But it doesn't end there. At his death, the effects of his death, the ripples along the ocean waves come into, into view. And we get to see what Christ does on that cross. At his death, the, the, verse 38 says that the current temple uh, was torn in two from top to bottom. What does this mean? 
these effects. And then we see it in verse 39. The centurion was facing him and confessed a confession of faith. What does this mean? In verse 38, the, the tearing of the curtain if, if you remember and you recall in Jesus' time when he goes to the temple, he's going to Herod's temple. He's going to the temple made by a pagan king and or a pagan uh, emperor or pagan ruler. And this temple within it contained two curtains. And Mark says that, that, the, that the curtain at the moment of his death was torn in two. We don't not know what curtain Mark was talking about. But the two curtains that that Mark is talking about, we know something about. The first curtain, which was in the inner part, or the important curtain, which was in the innermost part of the temple, was the curtain that represented uh, between God and man. This is what we saw in the tabernacle. The, the The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from everyone else. Only the priest could come in once a year on the Day of Atonement to bring an acceptable sacrifice for the people and their sin. In this case, it's no need for a priest and no need for any other type of sacrifice other than what just happened at the cross. So when the curtain tears open, it's making a way. It's showing everyone now the sacrifice and the work has been fulfilled. It is done. It is finished. It is perfect. A perfect sacrifice with a perfect priest has been accomplished. The curtain is open, my friends. Sinners come in. If Mark is talking about the, the other curtain or the outer curtain, the one that separated the Gentiles and the women from coming into the temple, then that's saying the same thing. That outer curtain from the outer courts now being torn open is allowing the nations. That's what John 3.16 says. If you've been with us on Sundays, you've, you've understood this concept. Now Christ died for the world. God loved the world. Now it's not just the Jewish people. If it's the outer curtain, it's for everyone. It's for that centurion. It's for all the Gentiles. It's for the same people that crucified him. Now there's a way. Now all the nations can come to Christ because the veil, the curtain, has been torn from top to bottom. This was God's doing. It wasn't torn from bottom to up as man's way to salvation. This came from top down. It was God providing a way for salvation at the death of his son, Jesus Christ. This showed us what a powerful sacrifice it really was. In verse 39, we see the centurion believed as he stood some versions in the Greek original manuscript say that he was directly in front of Jesus. As he was directly in front of him, he saw the effects of this crucifixion. Granted, he had seen many crucifixions done before him. There had been many other people that died this cruel death. But there was something different about this one. And the centurion, while others mocked, while others ridiculed, while the Jews and religious leaders of the day and the Romans placed all, even made fun of him by placing a placard on on the cross saying this is the king of the Jews while everyone else mocked and while the same disciples of Jesus left, 
This centurion was there face to face with the Savior of the universe. And when he is face to face with the Savior of the universe, at his death, he makes a confession. Truly, he says, this man is the Son of God. It's incredible, but in the Gospel of Mark, no one else utters that phrase. God mentions it in, John, in Mark chapter 1, verse 11 and 9, and the demons say it, but no other human says that this is the Son of God. This Gentile, this person that wasn't even part of the promise of the Jewish nation, was the first to confess Christ as Lord because he saw his death. At his death, he was able to confess. And so that why, that's, that's why, my friends, the death of Christ is vastly important because it provides us our faith. It was at his death that the centurion had faith. Jews and the Gentiles believe they rejected this notion of the suffering servant. But it was at this very suffering that God provided salvation for many. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. There's the title at the very beginning in Mark. The Son of God. And at the end of Mark. Towards the end of Mark. Now we know what this Son of God means. It is defined on the cross. The revelation of the power of the Son of Man is defined by what he does on the cross. James Edwards, a New Testament scholar, says, The cross is the intersection where God meets humanity. Saving confession is not predicated on prior knowledge, proximity to Jesus, or privilege. It is, rather, an act of faith and a divinely revealed act of atonement. Salvation was provided by a substitutionary sacrifice, my friends. And this was in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what are the eternal effects? This is what happened on Good Friday. That's what it caused. And the ripples of that, the first person to experience that in Mark's account was the Gentile Roman soldier who was possibly one of the ones who crucified him. The eternal effects of this death reminds us that the punishment Christ received was meritorious because of our sin. Christ merited our sin. The purpose of Christ to come to earth in the, as, as, as the God-man, the purpose of God sending his only son to become a man and to become incarnate was to bear our sin on the cross. That's what he did. That's what he came to do. Your sin and my sin Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. In Romans chapter 4 he says, Who, has, who was delivered up for the trespasses and raised for our justification? Not only did God send his son for our sin, 
but he also made his son a curse for us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In Galatians, Paul says, chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy. This is the effects of the cross. It was done because of us. And it was, he was made a curse because of us. Christ, this perfect being who never sinned was placed in such a state as if he had done so. And us, who always sin and who are far from perfect, were placed in a state as if though we were perfect. This is the divine substitution, divine interchange, the, the glorious moment of Good Friday lies in these facts. Christ bore our sin. Salvation came by the dying of one man. But friends, Good Friday to us is good because Christ is shown as the lamb, the sacrificed, perfect, spotless Lamb on Friday night. But in a couple of days, he will be shown as the lion. So thank God with me today that we get to enjoy a life freed from the bondage and the chains of sin and can come to Christ repentant because he has made a way. Now, if you're watching, I pray that you can at this very moment come to Christ and repent of your sins and confess you are a sinner and run to Christ, my friends, because there's no other way you can go. There's no other avenue for you. There's only one Christ, one cross, one salvation. It's only found in Jesus. So I pray that you come to him tonight and ask for forgiveness Repent, because Christ is coming back. Pray with me today. Father, we glorify your name. We recognize Good Friday from a 2,000-year perspective, that it was for our salvation. We realize that the agony of your pain on that day, bearing the burden of the world was nothing light for you. But you remained because you fulfilled. Because you knew your mission. And so you are worthy of all praise and you are worthy of all glory and you are worthy to be set on the throne and to sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, you are our Savior Jesus, we worship you and you alone. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, you have saved us from our sin. Jesus, we are freed from our sin because of what you did on Good Friday. 
We thank you, we glorify you, and we honor you. In Christ's name. And we all say amen. Church, you have been forgiven from your sins because of Christ. Thank you.